This morning, I want you to imagine what must have been one of the most difficult jobs ever given to anyone, and that is, I think, the idea of writing down about the life of Jesus. Imagine being a gospel writer. Okay, John tells us in his gospel that volumes and volumes could be written about Jesus and all that he did. So much so it would fill the world. That we get these little glimpses, but Jesus was always doing stuff. He was always saying stuff. He was always teaching stuff. And so how do you, as a gospel writer, put yourself in that place for a second. You're Matthew. And you got to write an account of Jesus. You feel called by God to write down some of the things that you've seen. Um, if it was Matthew that wrote it, some people think maybe it's a little later and one of the followers of Matthew sort of collects some of his teaching. Um, several of the gospel writers, Luke and Mark, they, they weren't disciples. They, they didn't know Jesus. They had to, hint, to collect accounts from different people. I mean, imagine you're trying to write about the life of someone who's fully God and full, fully human, who's gone through all of this, who said all those things. How do you make selections about what you're going to say and what you're going to write? Well, you have to have some kind of criteria, some kind of larger thing you're trying to write about. Because really, the Gospels are not that long. They're, they're short. And so the Gospel writers have to, and we believe are inspired by God, to, to select what they're going to write and how they're going to write it and what details they're going to leave out and what details they're going to put in and what stories they're going to leave out and what stories they're going to put in. They have to be selective. It's not written as a historical biography. And, and listen, as much as we are into history and we record history and we like to look up history, even those are selective. Even those don't tell all the stories. They, they pick and choose what details they're going to include. So what would you do? You'd plan around what you want to say about Jesus. What fits in your argument? What are you trying to say to the people you're trying to write to? And, and you'd pick those things and you'd bring out those things that you believe would help the people that are reading your gospel. And that's exactly what we have. We have four gospels. They're all very different. They share some things in common, but a lot of stuff they don't. Matthew, Mark, and Luke share more in common. John has almost nothing in common with the other three. Uh, so we call those three the synoptic gospels because they're, they're, they're similar. In the Bible, we have two birth narratives, and, and you probably have only ever heard it as one story. But really, it's two. Matthew has a version of the birth event and how Jesus comes into the world, and Luke has an event. And they're actually very different. There's some things in common. They don't really contradict each other, but they are different, uh, they're different ways of, uh, uh, of looking at uh, this story. Um, in Matthew's account, it's based on Joseph. You're going to see that in a second. Mary's barely a character. She's there, but she doesn't say a lot. She doesn't do a lot. She gets no dreams, no visits from angels. Joseph gets all that. If you go to the Luke story, it's all about Mary. And Joseph barely plays a part. And Mary gets an, an announcement from an angel. And she's the star of the story. Um, Matthew, you're going to see, has wise men. Luke has shepherds. They both pick up on different visitors to see Jesus. And so today we're going to try to look at Matthew, just Matthew, try to forget Luke and just look at Matthew on its own because we are in our society and as Christians so used to trying to jam these into one story, we miss out on the beauty of just seeing what each gospel writer was trying to say in the story. Matthew is a book written by a Jew to Jews. It's absolutely the most Jewish of all of the gospels. 
And his argument he's trying to make to these people that are Jewish is to say, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that fulfills our faith. What, and, and he tries to call people, what will they respond to this Jesus? So we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now Matthew starts out with a genealogy. I'm not going to read the genealogy. I'm not going to really talk about the genealogy that much. Um, uh, but it does feed into this story, but it's just too much to talk about this morning. So verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Pause. See, there's no story about her hearing about that. This is Joseph's perspective, and he just finds out his wife is pregnant. This is not good news if uh, you haven't been with your wife yet. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So, a little bit of cultural context here. Um, we get engaged, and then we get married. But the old school way of doing it was you would get betrothed, and then you would get married. And really, betrothed was like married, but you didn't move in together yet. Okay, betrothed, to end a betrothal, you had to get divorced. There wasn't like a, we'll just break off the engagement. You were legally betrothed to each other. And uh, normally you were betrothed for about a year until finally the father said, yes, you can go and live with your husband. And then the marriage was finalized and consummated. Now, if Mary is pregnant, this is a bad thing, right? Because they haven't been together. They haven't been living together, and, uh, but they're betrothed, so they know each other. They, they may not know each other well. We think Joseph's probably significantly older than she is, but they know each other. And um, if it, as a betrothed couple, you could see where there might be some temptation to know each other. You know what I'm saying? Uh, in the biblical sense, to know each other. And so the question is, well, did Mary and Joseph know each other? And that's what the community would have assumed, right? So now... Joseph finds out his wife is pregnant. Uh, maybe she says it's by the Holy Spirit, but who's buying that one, right? So he's got a decision he's got to make. What am I going to do with, with this, uh, my betrothed wife? One thing he could do is go ahead and marry her. And if he marries her, he and she would both be under the shame of the community because he's basically at that point confessing that it's his child. Her husband could also, Joseph could divorce her publicly in this case, she would be shunned and possibly even stoned for adultery. Very dangerous, very likely that she could be stoned for what she's done. The third option is to divorce her quietly, to end it, but not go out in the community and try to say what happens. This would be a shame on Joseph because everyone would sort of assume maybe it was Joseph's baby because he didn't call for her to be shunned and stoned as if it was adultery, but he, but he would end it. And hopefully, even though he would take on some of the shame or some of the questions of the community, she would not be stoned 
and would not be shunned the same way. Joseph, being an honorable man, picks the third option. And an angel comes to him in a dream to reassure him, saying, you should marry Mary. You can go ahead, because this is from the Holy Spirit. And you should name the child Jesus. We don't get this because um, we're reading it in English, but the name Jesus is Yeshua, Yeshua, okay? It's the same name, basically, as Joshua, Yahshua, Yeshua and Yahshua, okay? And that name just means to save. So there's a little bit of a play on words here. You should call him the saving one because he will save the people. He will save the world. Matthew points us to Isaiah 7.14 to show that the Savior would come from a virgin and would be God with us. God in the presence with us. This is always interesting in Matthew because nobody who read Isaiah thought that. Okay, nobody who thought read Isaiah was thinking that this is how this was going to happen. But what Matthew does is, and, and the gospel writers do this, they look back at the Old Testament through the lens, through the telescope of Jesus and say, ah, oh, there was something more here than they realized when they wrote that. And Matthew gives that to us here. Notice no shepherds join them. That's part of Luke's story. But in chapter 2, we see this story of wise men coming. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Pause. I, I don't mean to ruin your nativity sets. Okay? But I talked about this a little bit last week. If, at this, this is very clear, after Jesus is born, where do the wise men show up? Not in Bethlehem. In Jerusalem to see the king. They've got to wait on the king. They're going to have conversations with the priest. Then they've got to travel. They don't come that first night. Okay? They simply do not come that first night. They're not there. So if you really want your, your nativity set correct, set your nativity set up and put your wise men on the other side of the room. And then they can sort of travel over. And then in Epiphany, you can put them there. Okay? Saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When it rose, much better translation. How many of you learned it? We have seen his star in the east. Right? But it means rising, because the sun and the stars rose in the east. If you were from the east, and you saw a star in the east, which way would you go? East, but they go west, so it's obviously the star comes up and they sort of follow it. Okay? When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When, when Herod's troubled, everybody's troubled, by the way. Herod actually killed his family members because he thought they were threats to his throne, including his own wife and uh, probably his own son. Um, when Herod is troubled, everybody's troubled. Okay? And assembling all the chief priests and scribes with the people, he inquired of them where the Christ. They inqu he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, "In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their own way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went from before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed 
to their own country by another way. We sing we three kings, but these are probably not kings. The word magi really refers to stargazers. They were more like astrologers, okay, not like the NASA kind. I'm talking the reading signs and, uh, um, you know, read your palms and kind of judge the future based on the stars. Um, this word's normally used for priests of a religion. Um, uh, they were Zoroastrian priests. And they were very much into higher knowledge and reading the times, and they were very much into prophecies. So they would have paid attention to all these prophecies. And then when they see the star, they read or have some kind of sense that this is something special going on. Now, whether this is a star or a comet, we don't totally know. But the text says the star goes to rest over a house. Now, let me ask you a question. If you went out of your house at night, could you tell which star is directly over your house? Probably not. And and probably for them, with no electricity at night, the sky is going to be full of stars. You know, how are you going to look up and go, yep, this is the house right here, right? Probably not. And so the assumption has always been for the church that this was miraculous. And uh, it was probably maybe an angel or some kind of celestial light. But a lot of people say an angel. Um, So in your nativity sets, you probably have an angel over the nativity, right? Instead of a star. That's why. Because this is maybe more like an angel. So these are not Jews that are coming. They're priests of another religion. Of another area. Coming to recognize. This is a constant theme in Matthew. People who are Jewish have trouble seeing Jesus. Because he's writing to Jews and trying to get them to see it. But all these Gentiles in Matthew do see who Jesus is and recognize. And these Zoroastrian priests come. Of course, if you think a king's going to be born, where do you go? The palace. That's where kings are. That's where kings are born. But Herod does not know anything about this king. In fact, he's a little upset to hear about this king. So he gathers the chief priest and the scribe, and they find Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and suggests that maybe this child is going to be born in Bethlehem. Now Herod says, oh, I want to go worship that baby. You tell me where that baby is. But he is lying through his teeth. And as the story goes on, you're going to see how much he wants to get rid of this baby. And isn't it amazing that these chief priests and scribes hear this rumor about a baby being born, about this special star, and they hear that it's in Bethlehem, and they give guidance to the wise men to go find them. But none of the priests and none of the scribes go with them. You would think at least one of them would be like, We should go check this out. We should send one of us just to be sure this isn't the Messiah. They have no interest. So the star rests over the house. They go in. They see the child. um, And they bring three gifts. Gold. We know what gold is. Gold is this uh, uh, sign of wealth, a sign of royalty. Frankincense is this gum resin from trees and bushes, often used in religious practices. We use as incense was also used in grain offerings in the Old Testament. Sometimes you, you burned um, a bull or a goat, but, but sometimes if all you had was grain, you were a grain farmer, you would burn your grain and you would, you would pack it together into these cakes. And the thing that would keep it together in the cakes and make it smell really nice, it's called frankincense. Myrrh is a fragrant, another gum resin from South Arabia, North Ethiopia, and it's used in perfumes, in, in anointing oil and in incense. In that day, it was used primarily as a burial spice. Primarily as a burial spice. In the Gospel of John, we know myrrh is actually used on Jesus after he dies, before he goes into the grave. 
the tradition has always been that gold is for Jesus as king, frankincense for Jesus as God, and myrrh for Jesus as the one who would die. These wise men seem to really be wise, don't they? And we call them wise men, not just because they're stargazers, but because they are really insightful as to what Jesus is here to do. And the, the chief priests and the scribes, they don't know, but these Zoroastrian priests are figuring it out. They have a dream to go not go back to Herod, so they go back another way. This leads to Joseph having another dream. Now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Again, Joseph in a dream. And said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Remain there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So Joseph gets another dream. Which is interesting because there's a character in the Old Testament named Joseph. Do you remember Joseph? He had this amazing technicolor dream coat. And what was his gift that got him out of trouble and ended up saving all of Egypt and all of Israel? Joseph was an interpreter of dreams. Joseph was an interpreter of dreams. So they're told to flee to Egypt, which is amazing because it, for, for Jewish people, Egypt's where you want to get out of. Egypt's where you want to get out of. And yet the angel tells them to flee to Egypt. Matthew gives us Hosea 11.1 1 as this quote that says, ah, oh, the Messiah is going to have to go to Egypt and come back out. And so they escape Herod. But others are not so lucky. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked, verse 16, by the wise men became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, um, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel was the mother of the child that would be, the Jacob that would be Israel. So remember, Herod has murdered his own family, killing these Jews, not much. Even though he's the king of Israel, he's not actually Jewish himself. Um, he supposedly converts when he becomes king of Israel, um, but he doesn't practice at all and uh, does some pretty tough things to the temple in the midst of that. So he kills all the children in that region, two years old and younger. Um, this means maybe the wise men took a long time to travel. So he's trying to figure out, okay, when was the child born? Maybe they see the star and travel for a long time to get there. Or maybe he, they don't come till Jesus is much older. We, we're not quite sure how the timing goes there. Matthew doesn't make it real particular. This is called the murder of the innocents. Um, and it's just a terrible moment, isn't it? It never makes it into our Christmas pageants. Charlie Brown didn't deal with this story at all, right? It's terrible. It's terrible. It's rough. We often see Christmas as a cute story, but we can only see it that way if we skip a whole bunch of it. If we don't think about a whole bunch of it. It's ugly. It's not just the beautiful story that we see in Hallmark commercials. It's difficult. In fact, the whole story is a story of just that, something beautiful invading into something ugly. Light swooping into the darkness. 
And there's no pretend when Jesus comes into this world. He doesn't like tiptoe into humanity. He comes into the worst of it right away. When he's a child and his family's running for their lives. And so it's dark. But God is entering humanity. He's entering into the worst of it. And the story continues. 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. That was predictable, right? Another dream for Joseph. Okay. We keep going. If you, if you follow the narrative. Dream of Joseph. Herod. Dream of Joseph. Herod. Dream of Joseph. Okay. That's, that's how Matthew organizes this. Angel of the Lord, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, another dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a small city of Nazareth, that was spoken by the prophets, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. This is the one quote, by the way, we have no idea what it is. It's actually not a biblical quote. It must be some kind of other prophetic literature we don't have anymore. Um, but Herod dies. Angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and says, okay, time to go back. The word child is used here. Take the mother and his, the child and his mother. Okay, child is not baby. Child is not infant. Child is older child. So we don't know how many years perhaps take place before they go back to Israel. Can you imagine the scariness of this story for them? Okay, the scariness of, oh my goodness, my wife's pregnant. Should I divorce her? Should I not divorce her? Is she going to get a stone? I'm going to get shamed. Um, to, oh my goodness, these... These foreigners are coming in to take a look at this baby, to take a look at this child, to, oh my goodness, Herod's trying to kill our child, to, we're going to flee now to a foreign land and live in a foreign land. And as a Jew, Egypt, not the place you necessarily want to be, right? Okay. To, now I get to go back, but I'm still worried about this guy who's trying to kill me and try to kill my kid. Um, his son's still in rule over there. So will they ever finish off? What they were, imagine the trauma, the difficulty for a marriage that just started, right? For this young Mary, for Joseph, who's an honorable man. But man, has much ever else, has much harder been ever called upon by a husband and wife, by a man and a woman with their child? See, Matthew writes this a certain way, and it's, it's difficult, it's scary, and it's dangerous. And when we don't read it like this, when we just read little bits and pieces of it, we don't read it at all. We miss out on just the, the drama, the excitement, the, the, the terror of this story. By the way, the whole gospel is terrorizing, right? Because people are going to be after Jesus' his whole life. And eventually, we know the Easter story, they're going to get him. And he is going to be murdered. But we also know that that's not the end of the story. You may not have the kind of stress and danger that this holy family had. But this is a season of stress. Season of dark times. Where we need hope. Where we need Christ to come. And Matthew doesn't pull any punches in showing that Christ comes right into the sludge of this world. 
Jesus doesn't tiptoe into the darkness. He dives into some of the worst that humanity has to offer, even as a child. And who recognizes him? It's not, it's not the, the political leadership. It's not those in authority. It's not those people who are religious. It's those people that have been worshiping other gods their whole lives, who are foreigners, who don't belong, who are outsiders, who have probably done lots of things in their lives. And they come and they can recognize who the Messiah is. Matthew gives this intense drama, gives us this front row seat for the struggle of this family, for the amazing testimony of these wise men, and for these cheap, cheap uh, scribes and Pharisees that don't even go try to see the Jesus. And Matthew says, well, what are you going to do with this Jesus? You're in your own drama today, but Jesus comes to your drama too, to save you. To be Emmanuel, God with you. To sit with you through threat of evil and harm. To speak messages of hope and peace for families considering divorce. To give encouragement to you when you're scared. Or when you want someone to come home. Or you think you can't go home. For those who are slaves to their habits or their patterns. To be present with those who have lost children or who have lost parents. Or maybe you have a lot of darkness in your life. But let these magi be your guide. Let them be your star to guide you back to Christ. It's a perfect season to see him. And if you think, if you think your world, your world is so bad and your life is so bad that Christ doesn't come to you, that thought is garbage. Because right from the get-go, God comes right in the midst of your garbage. You're not so bad. And you're not so terrible and you've not been so far away in your faith that you can't still come and recognize this Jesus and experience this Jesus in your life. Zoroastrian priests do. Okay? People who have worshipped other gods do. You can too. You, You have not done anything so bad or had anything so bad done to you that this Christ isn't also hope for you. Hope for your day. The question that Matthew is always wondering, always in the background of Matthew, is how will you respond to this Jesus? How will you respond? It's my hope that you would respond in hope, that you would respond in love to the grace of Jesus that comes to you even in your dirty, messy, broken lives. Let's pray. Lord, let this Christmas be a special Christmas where we see you and where we recognize you. Work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.